can you just stand for a moment? We're going to stand as we make this de- these declarations. Now, when, when, we're, when we're declaring something, we're doing it as if we believe it, as if it's already happened, it's going to happen, and it will continue to happen. So I want you to really say and make this statement and, and, and do it with passion. Are you ready? Repeat after me. As the Father sent Jesus, I am sent. Okay, that was a good practice. <laughs> if I was to bring the kids out here, whoa, okay? So we're going to do this again. And I really want, honestly, we need to shout it. We need to shout it. We need to declare it. It needs to be who we are, who's inside of me, who rises up, okay? Okay? All right. As the Father sent Jesus, I am sent to seek and to save that which was lost, to destroy the works of the devil. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. I am anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Set those that are oppressed. Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. I am a child of God. Demonstrating his kingdom and his will. On earth. As it is in heaven. As it is in heaven. Amen. Yeah, that seems like it needs an amen, doesn't it? It does need an amen. It does need an amen. That's that was excellent declaring. Am I turned on? Am I turned on? What a question to ask a church. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think the can you hear me now would have been a better better way to go. You can all sit down now. As soon as the blush comes off my face, I'll be able to talk. Man. Okay, well, on that note, last June, June of 2012, and, and sometime before that, actually, the Lord, I, I really felt like he spoke to me to preach the Sermon of the Mount, right? I mean, I don't know, usually, on Monday, what I'm going to talk about on Sunday. When you hear it on Sunday, most of the time, to a large extent, I learned it that week, and you're hearing about it that Sunday. I mean, I have some impressions I've been reading the Bible for, I don't know, however many years I've been reading the Bible, went to the correspondence class for the Assemblies of God, but I'm still, like, every week it's new for me, right? Amen. So, to preach almost 30 sermons out of, like this, is just off the charts for me. And I'm going to try today to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've had a couple of little off-ramps, like when, when we had the revival meetings. We, we picked the weekend we had the revival meetings, because that's the weekend that Denny and um, Ed could actually be here together. All the other weekends, one or the other of them, or both of them, was already tied up. So we picked it then. We weren't done with the Sermon on the Mount, but that was when we could have it, so that's when we had it. And uh, I really felt strongly that we shouldn't have the revival meetings and then just jump right back into whatever we were doing, that, that it wasn't a thing that we checked off on our list, like, oh, hey, well, we had revival meetings, that's cool. You know, I don't know whatever churches do, but we got that one checked off our list. Revival is literally to be who we are, what we are. When we look at the Bible, if we ever see any kind of a chasm between the, what, the, what the Word 
demonstrates and what we see in ourselves as the church, then we have to pray and act and let the Holy Spirit work to, to where that chasm, and it doesn't come like this, right? If this is what the Word says and this is what we look like, we don't meet in the middle, right? We go like this until the witness of our lives as Christians, as disciples, as followers of Jesus matches what we see in the Scripture. And we don't have to feel condemned because it's, it's not exactly a perfect match, but we should, we should be always, always, always desiring to move towards that place where there is no difference between what Jesus did, how Jesus looked, how he acted, and the way we look, act, be as Christians. So anyway, all that said, it was the right thing to do. I'm going to try to finish the Sermon on the Mount today, um, but we're not, we're not done with revival. We've only just started to talk about praying for the sick and, and really sincerely practicing it as a body. And there are so many things prophecy and just oh so much to do to get to be the church that looks exactly like we see in the scriptures all right so interesting this last course of scripture the first part it's 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 one course of scripture i want you to hear it as one piece of information kind of like one contiguous thing i'm going to break it into four chunks the first chunk i actually preached on I, it was the last piece I talked about before we started the revival meetings. So I'm going to just touch on that, but I'm going to look at it from a little different perspective because I'd gone online and I, and I watched, um, oh, I'm going to cramp on the guy's name now. He's so famous, Mike Bickle. Mike Bickle does a, a really extensive teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And I went to see his teaching because the part that talks about you'll know them by their fruit, I still don't get that. So I thought, well, maybe Mike Bickle can give me some some kind of insight on that, which turns out he didn't. Um, not that he doesn't have insight, but it just didn't turn any lights on for me. But the way he described the beginning of this was very interesting, and it's, it's still true to the way we taught it a few weeks ago, but it's from a different perspective, and I think it will help us. So it's, it's one course of Scripture. It's speaking from Mike Bickle's perspective literally to the church. And, and when I say the church normally, the church is the body of Jesus. It's, it's people who are sealed with the Spirit of God, right? So there can be people that come to church. There can be people that call themselves Christians that sincerely believe that they're Christians, but they're not in the sense that they're not part of Jesus' body if they don't have the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. When he comes to reside in us, when we make the confession of faith and the confession of lordship, unto Jesus, right? That's when the born-again experience happens, and you become church. So when I say church today, it's, it's not in that context. Those people are included, but it's also in the context of the people that would consider themselves church, but aren't church in that they're not born again, and they aren't sealed with the Holy Spirit, which really means they're not saved, okay? So just, I want you to have a little bit of perspective. I listened to this, this teacher. His name is R.C. Sproul. Have any of you heard of R.C. Sproul? Okay, R.C. Sproul is a Reformed theologian. Way, way, way different stream than, I, than we would be in. You know, we would be a Pentecostal church. He would not be a Pentecostal guy, not at all. But I don't have seminary. I don't have Bible college. So I try to be really careful that, that I don't just listen to people that are like me. And R.C. Sproul isn't like me. I mean, he's just... He's probably glad he's not like me, but he, he doesn't even know me, so he wouldn't, he wouldn't necessarily be that glad. In any case, he's a different stream, and he's a very teacher-teacher. He's a classroom teacher kind of a guy. You know, He's an apologist. He's, he's just deep, deep, deep. So I listen to him because he's just not necessarily who I would follow because I want a breadth 
of what God's saying, not just, you know, the people that totally agree with me. So I was listening to him the other day, and it was interesting because he made this comment that, that just fit right so well into this particular message today. And the, the comment he was making was about the church, and he said, and he was literally teaching about the Apostles' Creed and the part that talks about the Holy Spirit. And he said that the church is in kind of like two camps. There are what he called theoretical Christians, and there are practical Christians. And the way he defined a theoretical Christian is somebody who's come into a mental agreement with Jesus, who's kind of come into a mental agreement with the teachings of the Bible. In theory, they're Christian, but in practice, they're not, right? So that would be a person who would not fit well into the culture that we, we hope Church on the Street will be because the whole name of Church on the Street is to define culture. It's not because we got this cute little white church with a picket fence on the street, right? We're not that. What we are hoping to be is people that understand that we are always church. Right. Before I'm Annika's dad, I'm church. Before I'm Teresa's husband, I'm church. Before I'm pastor, I'm church. The highest and presiding, I don't know if that's the right word, but the highest and, and, and first and foremost call on my life is church, to be the body of Jesus and to go about doing the will of my Father in heaven, to seek and to save that which was lost, to destroy the works of the devil. Always the first thing we are is church. So a theoretical Christian that wasn't a practical Christian wouldn't get that so much because to go into the grocery store and pray over somebody because you felt led wouldn't be part of their program, Right? So I thought it was interesting, and it fits right in to the perspective I want you to have as you're hearing these last um, four chunks of verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, I'm going to read the whole thing to you, and then we'll take it apart a chunk at a time. Starting in uh, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to go from verse 13 through verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Let me just tell you one more thing. When I started this, like, 14 months ago, I was so, it's so cool because I don't usually capture these kind of revelations. I really felt like the Lord told me to read the end first and then go read the rest because the end, when Jesus speaks the end, he's talking about what he just said. So when I read these last verses, the ones um, that would start in verse 24, think about them in the context of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, starting in verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. 
and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. So, we'll jump back up to verses um, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Mike Bickle's perspective on these was really interesting. He said that what Jesus is teaching in these two verses He's speaking to the church. I put the church in quotes, right? Because it's not the church necessarily that's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the church that perceives itself as the church. Some of them actually being church and some of them not being church. So that there are, there are two messages that are preached to the church. And one is a, is a message that pre- preaches the promises of the Bible, the promises of Jesus, along with the requirements of the covenant that the Bible teaches. So, you know, the promise is that in Jesus Christ you would have eternal life. Right? You would be a son of God, those that would accept Jesus Christ, these promises that we all want so badly. The requirements of the covenant might be things like that if you want to have your life, you have to lose it. If you don't die to yourself, that you can't be my disciples unless you give up everything that you own. So there's one message that preaches the narrow way unto life that is defined by not just the promises, but also the requirements of the covenant. There's a second message that's preached to the church that is a message of, of, of all the promises and all the blessings and all the stuff that we would perceive as good, but without any of the requirements, right? And it's a message that's very much, I don't mean to diminish grace because it's all a function of grace, but it's a very grace-centric message typically that doesn't have any requirements, so that would be the perspective or, or, or the definition that I would leave you with of, of the, the in context because he's talking about these teachers or these prophets that are going to bring these false messages. And, and he said that's basically what Jesus is talking about. The, the message that's full and it holds everything, the requirements as well as the blessing, or the message that just only always speaks to the blessing and none of the requirements and grace takes care of everything. Okay? All right, so next chunk, starting in verse 15 through 19, or excuse me, through 20, Jesus says, for us, to the church, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn, uh, thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Boy, it would be excellent for you to, as you're pondering this whole message, read John chapter 15. Right at the beginning, Jesus talks a lot about trees, and well, he calls it a vine in that context, but vines and fruit and pruning and branches, then vine, branches that don't produce fruit and they go into the fire. It's interesting when you see how tight the scripture is. Um, anyway, it would be a good one for you to read. Okay, so when you think of these false prophets, in our world, you know, we're going to have more of a prophetic culture, praise God, but we don't have a prophetic environment like these people would have been used to. Even though the the prophetic voice until uh, John the Baptist had basically been silent for 400 years, they really understood the prophets. When Jesus talked about the law and the prophets, his audience knew what he was talking about. So when you hear 
prophet in this context. I think you could think of pastor, teacher, anybody that would proclaim the word of God in a way to teach and influence people. And probably, I would almost guess 100%, but maybe it's a little less than 100%, a person today that would be a false teacher would not perceive themselves as a false teacher. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have an agenda in their mind consciously that said, okay, how can I influence people to follow me so that they'll give me money so that I can either get fame and or fortune and or standing and or... I doubt very much that there's very, very few people that would profess to be Christian teachers or prophets whose motive isn't in their heart they think it's right. So they, you could have the influence of a false teacher without the teacher actually recognizing that they're a false teacher. I started to talk about this. Let me talk about it a little bit more. The, the, the words we would use for that, that less than complete uh, definition of the narrow path would be a greasy grace message, right? Have you heard the phrase greasy grace? It's like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Grace will take care of it, do what you want. And I don't mean to jam up the Catholic Church because I really don't understand Catholic doctrine. And, and this could be false in my mind, but it, it's an example that works for me in this. Um, a person is... Uh, you know, got, they have care of the petty cash box at their office, right? And every week they take, you know, $20 out of the petty cash box or $50 out of the petty cash box, and, and they take it for themselves. It's not, they steal it, right? And then they, they go on whatever day you go to confession, and they sit across the thing from the priest, and they say, oh, Father, you know, I took 50 bucks out of the petty cash thing, and somehow, you know, they've confessed their sin, and, and they get absolved of it, and, and they walk out free, and then the next week they take another 50, and they know they can take another 50 because all they got to do is go tell the priest about it, and they're okay, and they could go take another 50 and then go tell the priest about it, and then they're okay. Galatians says that God will not be mocked. See, anybody that would believe that they could continue to walk in sin and that grace would cover it doesn't understand the truth. The gospel is good news, but it's not anything you want it to be. So greasy grace would kind of look like that. Now, and it don't, I don't know if that's true of the Catholic Church, but, but that's just the picture that I think of. Some people might want to say, hey, you know, it says if I confess my sins, God's faithful to forgive them, so I'll do them, I'll confess them, he'll forgive them, I'll do them, I'll confess them, he'll forgive them. I, that's mocking God, and there is no forgiveness in mocking God. That message, that, that, that not full message, would have all the love and all the benefits without repentance, without sacrifice, without surrender. And wouldn't necessarily understand that, that biblical love is always a two-way street, right? I am, I am grateful and happy to walk in the love of God, in, in his love for me. It's wonderful, but I don't respond in love. See, and, and Jesus teaches over and over and over again, I think almost exclusively through the mouth of John, that his reception of love is, is in our demonstration of obedience. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. This is how you demonstrate love for me. You obey my commands. If you do what I say, you love me. If you don't do what I say, you don't love me. So a person that would be dis willfully and consciously disobedient to Jesus is happy to receive his love, but not interested in demonstrating love to Jesus. The The... I shouldn't keep calling it the greasy grace message, but, but, but a message that's less than full that would present Jesus almost really as an idol to somebody. And, and it often comes with good intentions. You know, I want, I want to see somebody, when I do a salvation call, hopefully it's because everybody's saved, the only person that ever raises his hand is Eli Green, right? 
And if Eli was in here, he would raise it every time just because God loves me. Somebody will raise their hand. Eli gets saved every time I give a message in front of him. Makes me so happy. For pastors, there's a big challenge. I used to be a, 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 in sales. I, um, I mean, I had a, a $1.2 billion quote, $100 million a month to be on target. I had to get sold through my sales team at HP. And if I was doing okay, if I was over quota, man, I was a hero. Everybody loved me. If I was under quota, I was a bum. And, there, and it was like you couldn't do anything right. They had this funny saying. It's like if you're over quota, you don't get any help. If you're under quota, you get help. You never want help because that's your boss comes to see you. He's helping you. What he's doing, he's telling you, you know, I thought you were okay, but I could find somebody else who could actually be on quota. The beauty of that life is I always knew how I was doing. I could just push a button on a report. Up would come. If it was green, that means 100.0 or better. Today's a good day. If it was 99.8% or worse, I'm waiting for the phone to ring, right? I could understand when I was doing okay and why not. Well, as a pastor, that's tough. People ask me all the time, you know, how's it going? I'm like, hmm. The only things I can measure is if somebody comes and if they give any money. I don't count how many people come and I never know how much money you give. So I have no way to know. I think the appropriate measure is fruit. But I don't know your life so much. That's why I get so excited when I see a guy who probably never prayed for someone to get healed again, prayed over his wife, and she got healed. I'm not telling you the testimony. You tried, but you're not getting it out of me. You're so sneaky how you do that. I could, I could kind of measure that, but I don't know your lives well enough to really know. So for me, I would, I would be tempted to want to say, oh, Jesus loves you so much. Do you want Jesus' love? If you want Jesus' love, raise your hand and pray this prayer with me. And you raise your hand and you pray a prayer, and I say, welcome to the kingdom of heaven. I didn't talk to you at all about Jesus being the Lord of your life. I didn't talk to you at all about that you have to die if you want to live. You just got this thing, sweet, I'm going to heaven. I might never see you again because the only thing that you were required to do was say, yeah, I want Jesus' love. And you raised your hand and said a little prayer. Now, I might even get you to pray the right words, but you don't have any idea what it is I'm telling you. And some people really get saved that way, but I'm fearful that some people don't because Jesus says over and over, many are going to go this way, and only a few are going to go that way. So my inclination in my flesh is to to get you to raise your hand, because if I see a whole bunch of hands go, I feel good about myself, right? So it's easy to understand how somebody who's in a position to lead or to teach or to, to proclaim could compromise, not consciously, but just because they want to feel like they're getting something done. In Galatians, Paul speaks this to the, to the, to the Galatian church. He, he went to, I always get Galatians and Colossians. He never went to Colossians. He was, did plant the church in Galatia. So he planted this church. He taught them the truth. And then he went on with, about his business to other places, left some folks in charge, and, and these false apostles show up. And they're Jewish people. And they're saying, hey, you guys got it that close to right. But you can't be a Christian unless you're a Jew first. So you need to be circumcised so that you can become Jewish because salvation is for the Jews and then you can have Jesus and be saved. And Paul says, wait a minute. The minute you take circumcision as a function of your salvation, you have been severed from Christ and you have fallen from grace. So the the lying message, if they had embraced the message, if Paul hadn't come back and corrected them, literally could have called them to walk out of eternity with God. 
that they would have been literally severed from Jesus because now once they use any of the law to satisfy them in righteousness, they're required to keep all the law as satisfaction unto righteousness. And the word says that nobody can do that. Nobody has, nobody's gonna. So the false message could cause people literally to either never receive salvation, like the way I described it, or to have been saved and then to be severed from Jesus, to fall from the grace that has them saved because they grasped on to a message that wasn't the message. Oh, let me just tell you, it's a two-way street. The Bible talks all about, or doesn't talk all about, it talks mostly about the false prophet or the false teacher. But people, people will draw you to a place where you, you will tell them what they want to hear, right? So some of it is not on just the false prophet or the false teacher. Some of it is on the person who wants his uh, itching ears to be tickled, right? Paul writes to Timothy, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Now, this is, I think, 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he wrote. I mean, he's just about done. He's run the race. And Timothy is, his, is basically his son in the faith. It's like he's passing on. Everything that he has, he's given it to Timothy because Timothy's going to carry this mantle on into the future. This is what Paul says to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Now here's the part you really need to hear. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They won't listen. They just won't hear it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So what he's telling Timothy is, you stand firm on the word of God. You preach the truth. You use it to reprove and to rebuke and and it's perfect for every kind of need that we have to be godly. But you be careful because the people are not going to want to hear that they got to die if they want to live. They're not going to want to hear that, that they have to treat others more highly than they would have themselves be treated because they'll be fleshly and they'll rebel and all these kind of things. But you, you preach the word. Otherwise, what will happen is they're going to go find somebody that's going to tell them what they want to hear. And, and, and that. So... I think I just heard God. Guess what he said? Enough. (laughs) Okay. The last thing I wanted to talk about from from that chunk of the scripture is fruit. You will know them by their fruits. And I honestly, I don't get it. I mean, I get the concept of fruit, right? If we planted a fruit tree and another fruit tree, and, and this fruit tree had all kinds of just amazing fruit on it, and this tree produced nothing. Just leaves fell on the ground and there was no fruit. You couldn't eat any of the fruit. It was a bad tree. Cut it down, use it for firewood, throw it away. I mean, I understand the concept of fruit. I understand the concept of fruit in our lives. I understand the concept of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What I don't understand so much is is fruit in like a, in like a black and white kind of a fashion. You'll just know them by their fruit. Because I don't know anybody who is obviously just has bad fruit. And I don't, I don't really know anybody, I mean, and the only person I know really well is me, that has just nothing but good, excellent fruit, right? John 15 says that 
that Jesus is the vine and we're the branches. And from the branches come fruit. So he's given us this picture of a, of a grapevine, right? And grapevine branches. And then some of the branches produce a tremendous amount of fruit. We're the branch. The objective is to produce fruit that lasts, eternal fruit, right? But part of a branch, there might be a little spindly leaf over here, and it's drawing nutrition, but it's not producing any fruit. It says the father is the vine dresser. What he does is he prunes those little parts off. So when you go you know, into the fire, like you say, um, oh, I want that baptism of fire. And my opinion is that that's not a power baptism. That's a going into the fire baptism. That's those little things coming off of you so that all the nutrition goes to the places that generate the fruit, right? In that picture, the branch itself is producing fruit, but it's not perfect because it needs a vine dresser to trim it. And that's where I get kind of gummed up in this, you'll know them by their fruit concept, because I've never met anybody who didn't seem like there was some good aspects and some part that needed pruned off, versus it was obvious that there's no good fruit, therefore it's false. That's why I get hung up in I'm not. I wish I had some better answer to tell you. I think, and Mike Bickle said, that, that bad trees are always, always come to be known as a bad tree. Eventually there will be fruit or bad fruit or no fruit. And, and the evidence of the false prophet or teacher might be even not as much in themselves as in the people that are hearing, right? So, so if Jesus says that we're to be disciples and that, that if we don't die to ourselves, that we might live totally to him, that would create a set of behaviors and a lifestyle and like a, like, you know, like a boat pushes water and a wave of stuff, right? So if, if I was a proper teacher and you were proper disciples, we should see that wave increasing and increasing as we influence the world for the kingdom. But if I was teaching you that all you do is you come to church on Sunday so that you can give me money, I tell you about how God's going to bless you this week, and then you go about, and, and Jesus or church is your third priority or the fourth priority of your life based upon what else is important to you, that wave wouldn't exist. So it could be that the fruitful evidence or the lack of a fruitful evidence is as much in the audience as it is in the teacher themselves and how you might know. I don't mean this as a rebuke. Seriously, I don't. But you know, we're not thousands of people. But we're enough people that some of us ought to have something to say about the week before in a testimony, right? I mean, we should have to have a process where you sign up because we'd be here till Wednesday for all the testimonies. I mean, that's, that's what I, my vision is of when we really get cranking as a body of Christ and, and we're healing sick people and we're, we're pulling people in to safe families, the children that don't have a home to live in and all that kind of stuff. It's going to be a pretty amazing testimony all the time. Okay, so I don't have much to give you on fruit because I don't really understand it. The next chunk of scripture, starting in verse 21, reads this way. Ooh, this is where this, is where this gets to be like the most convicting, some of the most convicting words in all of scripture. And understand, this is Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, 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 many bunches of people will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I, Jesus, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, Jesus is speaking to church people. Remember Mike Bickle defined the church as theoretical 
and practical believers. He's speaking to the church. And some of those theoretical believers actually manifested the power of God in the name of Jesus during their lives. But the, the, the switch, which was the sincere commitment to Jesus as Lord, the switch, which was the sincere trust in him as Savior, was never turned on. And, Jesus, and it wasn't like it was turned on and it was turned off because it doesn't say, you know, I used to know you, but now I don't recognize you anymore. He said, I never knew you. These aren't somebody who never ever, you know, who cursed Jesus. These are church people. And the scary thing is, they're at their judgment. They are on that day. And they're standing before Jesus, waiting to come in, thinking of the treasures. I wonder how much treasure I got when I cast out that demon. I wonder how much treasure I got when I did that miracle. I wonder how much, I wonder how much, I wonder how much. They're standing there, and they're like, Jesus, it's me, here we are. And Jesus says, yeah, let me look in the book twice. I don't know you. I don't know you. You, But we went to church, and we did all this stuff. Heaven forbid. The pastor said, I just had to just ask you into my heart, and I prayed the prayer. Come on, Jesus. Here's the deal. If, if you don't have Jesus today, you have hope, right? You have hope. If you have the most painful disease that could ever any person have, and you're just, you're just racked in the most horrible pain that drugs or medicine or prayer, nothing seems to help, you have hope. You could die. I mean, if your best thing is to be dead, you don't have the pain anymore. But you have hope. You always, when you're alive, you always have hope. It may not be hope in like this ultimate whatever, but you always have hope. There's always hope, always hope. Imagine a situation where you've just been told that you are not going to spend eternity with God. You are going to be tormented, punished in hell, not like you know a life sentence or two life sentences or, or out in 50 years on good behavior. You're done. You can't repent. You can't say you're sorry. You can't confess Jesus is Lord. You can't nothing. You're done. There is no hope. It's why it's so important for us to be sincere when we pray. It's why I've been saved like 10 times. Every time I get new revelation, I'm like, or I see one of you guys get saved. I'm like, oh, I didn't have that experience. Lord, just, I just want to be sure. And you think it's funny. I'm serious as I can be. I sit by myself in that chair and I say, Lord, I know what it means to get saved. I know that, that I, you must be the sincerely confessed Lord of my life and I'm telling you what you are. And if you're not, you've got to do something to make it so I'm sincere because I can't even, I can't fathom the thought that I'll be one of those Lord, Lord guys standing before you when I have no hope. We have to humble ourselves. We have to be so sincere and so literally working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to be reading this book because of the false teacher. I could be me. I mean, I don't think so, but it could be. There's smart guys that disagree with the things I tell you. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to pray. You've got to have a relationship with God that affirms for you that you're not going to be a Lord, Lord guy on that day. I think about the greasy grace gospel, and I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not disparaging anybody. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says this. Now, this is Paul, and he's talking to the church. He's not talking on the, he's not a, he's not a street preacher telling all these unsaved people. He's talking to people that think they're saved. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, this practice, wow, I have a note that I can't find into what I just read you. 
Oh, Jesus, uh, he, he talked about them being lawless, right? Lawlessness is sin. Somewhere in, I think it's one of the Timothys, literally Paul says, and, and, and lawlessness is sin. So when he says lawless, he's talking about sin, and, and he's talking about the practice of sin. So if you're somebody who, um, gosh, let me pick one that's not going to offend you too bad. You're a drunkard. You're not a drunkard, but you got drunk, right? It's not, it's not the practice of sin. It's the stumble of sin. And you may have stumbled into drunkenness. But if, if you're part of the church that's actually church, you should, you should have a sense of godly sorrow. And you should have a sense of repentance. And that godly sorrow and that, and that repentance, once you see your sin, would cause you to get down on your knees, ask for forgiveness. And it says that he is faithful to forgive if we'll confess our sins. But it's got to come from a place that you truly mean it versus the guy that said, yeah, you know, I, I, I took 50 bucks out of the thing and, and I'm here to tell you about it because next week I'm going to need to take another 50 bucks out of the thing and, you know, should we make an appointment because I'm going to come back. See, that's not the kind of grace that saves you. There, there, there is no grace there. That's just a false expectation of an idolatrous God that doesn't operate the way that you think that God is. That's not God. That's some idol that you decide for yourself. So... It's the practice of lawlessness. It's righteousness and unrighteousness. See, righteousness, the, the, oh, I should have looked all these up somewhere towards the back half of the New Testament. I think it's Peter or James. It's one of those guys. He said that, that, that the one who practices righteousness is righteous, right? Now, you'd say, but wait, I'm righteous. In, in God's eyes, I'm right before God because if he sees me in Christ Jesus, then I am righteous in Christ. And you'd be absolutely right. But your righteousness unto your salvation and then your righteousness as a result of your salvation are kind of two different things. The righteousness that comes from salvation because you have the Holy Spirit in you, convicting you of your sin, taking you down this path of sanctification should cause the actual practice of righteousness to be demonstrated in your life. You should be different tomorrow than you were yesterday because God is in you. But if there is no evidence of righteousness in your behavior then the righteousness that you're claiming as a function of salvation, I'd be concerned about it. Because the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And if, if I mean, he makes the list long. He could capture just about anybody in these lists. He captured me a few times in here. I'm not telling you how many. <laughs> but he did. I mean, seriously. And, and can I just tell you something? I don't practice any of these things. I, I don't. Because of the Holy Spirit in me and the transformation that's happened in my life. Jesus wants us to understand. He doesn't want anybody to be the Lord, Lord guy on that day. 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, he's talking to you, he's talking to me. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Also in all your behavior... Because it is written, you shall be holy. This is God speaking now. You, you shall be holy for I am holy. But what about grace? Grace is so that when you stumble out of holiness, there's a path back. Grace isn't so that you can stumble out of holiness. Do you understand the distinction? Right? Right? Greasy grace says do what you want because God's just loving. He just loves me. You don't understand love, Pat. I, I think I do. Grace isn't for that. For the willful commission of sin. Grace is for I committed sin and I have a way back. I, I didn't lose my salvation because I sinned because of grace. Okay. 
I just checking to see if the horse was all the way dead. It turns out I kicked him enough. Okay, the, the, last, the last bit now starts in verse 24 and it goes through verse 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. See, the difference between, at least, you know, the way he's closing up the Sermon on the Mount, this is it. This is the part that you read first and then you go back and you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 to see what these words of mine are because he's, he's referencing all this stuff that he just taught in what we would have as those three chapters of red letters in the Bible. And he says the difference between the theoretical Christian and the practical Christian is the one who does the stuff that he says. They're the ones that are going to have their house found on earth. They both get to have a storm. Sad to tell you that Greasy Grace message probably wouldn't tell you this. You're going to have a storm. You're, God's going to allow trials and tests and storms into your life because it's this... It's this I don't even know how, what to call it. It's like, a, it's like a tool, and its name is perseverance. And, and as you persevere in trials, in storms, in tests, you develop this faith of yours. As your faith is tested, perseverance works in you so that you might be mature and complete and lacking nothing, right? So everybody gets to have the storm, but only one stands in the storm. And it isn't the fact that you heard the words... Because everybody heard the words. And everybody might have even agreed with the words. What Jesus says is the one who acts on those words is the one whose house is fastened to that firm rock foundation. I wanted to go through, because it's, I mean, we started 14 months ago, right? I mean, Beatitudes are like so far in the history now. I want to kind of go back and review the Sermon on the Mount, and I just don't think time is going to allow for it. So let me just leave you with this relative to these words of mine. When Jesus says these words of mine, those who are, those of us, the the church that's not just a theoretical but also a practical Christian, those who are poor in spirit, mourn over sin, humble, passionate for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, persecuted (laughs) persecuted for righteousness' sake, salt that hasn't become tasteless, righteous, keepers of Jesus' teaching, true to their word, whose yes is yes. Lovers of their enemies, perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect, practicers of righteousness in secret, forgivers, not interested in worldly treasure, not serving wealth, committed to the kingdom and righteousness of God, trusting in their heavenly Father for all their needs, more concerned about the splinter in their own eye than the log in somebody else's eye, treating others as they would like to be treated themselves. You see, that's what Jesus describes as the person who heard the words and acted on them. If you go back and read what he said, that's what he's talking about. Somebody offended me. Well, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not that guy. I forgive you. I forgive you. How do you forgive him? You can't. The guy, look at the, it's like, no, no. All I have to do is decide. And then grace comes. I don't have any power to forgive. 
but I have grace in agreement with God. When I humble myself before God, then the grace comes. When I get proud before God, he resists me. There's no grace in pride. There's only grace in humility. So we should be constantly examining, right? Another scripture, I can't tell you where it's at. Paul says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see if you're truly in the faith. So that's a great examination list right there. You know, am I in the faith? Am I gentle? Am I, am I humble? Am I forgiving? Am I trying? Whether I always do it or not isn't so much the issue, but that I'm committed to treating others the way I want to be treated. Am I moving down that path towards sanctification to when, when I look in the mirror, I'm starting to see a little Jesus. And that's not pride. That's glory. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The last scripture I'll leave you with, and I actually have the address, is James chapter 1 and verse 22. Now, James is Jesus' brother, right? He's literally his biological half-brother. And he says this, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. See, the one who's house is, is not fastened to the rock, whose house is, is sitting in the sand, thinks that they're sitting on the rock. It's the doer of the word, not the, the effectual doer of the word, not the person who just hears the word. See, the person that hears the word and thinks they're okay, James says they're deluded. They're, they're, they're misaligned in their thinking. They're, they're wrong, and sadly, they're very much in the position where they could be a Lord, Lord guy. They think there is no worse place, there is no worse place to be than to think you're saved and you're not. Because if you know you're not saved, then you're going to make a conscious decision. You're just going to stay that way or you're going to surrender yourself to Jesus. But you know, and and you can choose. But if you think you're saved and you're not, you don't do anything about that. You just go merrily about your life until you get to that place where there is no hope anymore. And you can't say, I know Jesus. Back me up an hour and I'll confess you. It's like you, you, doors closed. No hope for you. So that, that ends you know, the formal 14 months of Sermon on the Mount. I mean, there's too much richness in the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much in just that part today that could have been another 50 sermons. But I really feel like God is, is, is moving me to a different place now. If you've been here any length of time, you're like, you're a one-trick pony. All you talk about is you know, gotta, you got to serve Jesus. you got to obey Jesus. It's not just about believing. It's about obedience. It's about read your Bible. It's about pray. I've had such a heavy burden for the whole entire time of church on the street about this, this gospel that's not the gospel, about people that think they're saved but they're not saved, about what about all the scriptures where Jesus says, if you don't sell everything you own, I mean, he tells the rich young ruler, you know, here's the only other thing that you lack is take everything you own, sell it, give the proceeds to the poor, come follow me and you'll be rich in heaven. And I think to myself, now, is he speaking in a parable there or is he telling me, I mean, honestly, it's convicting to me. It really is. I don't know whether you have to sell everything you own, give the money to the poor, and then be poor so somebody can give you some. I I really don't know. But what I do know is I've had this burden, this really heavy burden, that we don't look like Jesus too much. And I mean, I'm in the chair right here with you. I'm like, amen, Pat. Jeez, you know, look at yourself. I'm preaching to us. I really am. 
But I feel that burden lifting. So either God's like, you know, he's never going to figure out how to preach this message, or maybe it's, it's happening, that we're really becoming convicted to the truth and that we're being transformed and we're asking, not just begrudgingly, you know, God's pushing me down the narrow path and I hate it. It's not that. It's that it's actually happening and we're embracing it because all the time putting this message together, I'm, I'm just feeling this burden lifting off of me. And I'm glad because I don't want to be the greasy grace guy, but I like to preach some good news stuff once in a while. You know, everybody smiles and happy. Oh, Pastor, you made me so happy today. I like to throw out a few of those messages. The place he's taken us, I really believe, is surrender unto the power of the kingdom. And let me just tell you, the the not-so-fun part of that is going to be holiness. That we have to embrace holiness. That we, I'm getting that tingle. It's just all over me right now. (laughs) Oh, I wish it would, like, I would glow like Moses so you wouldn't think I was nutty. But I could feel it. Somebody order me a veil. (laughs) No veil, she says. (laughs) Yeah. The point is that he's now calling us to this place of, of, of being the true witness to Jesus. The full on, everything he did, everything he said we do. Oh my gosh, if you read just what Jesus did and you set that as your bar, it's too low because he said you're going to do more. More than what he did. Yeah. Okay. Was that a decent sermon? I still suck at closing them out. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> I'm not asking you to clap. I'm just like, okay, everybody, I'm done now. Here comes Teresa. (laughs) Wow. So when Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one, as having, he was teaching them as one having authority. Pat, I'm speaking to you. And then Jesus came down from the mountain. See, we're Jesus here on earth. We're his hands and feet. In 14 months, I've been on this journey with you. Moment. Well, Does anybody notice it's not me that's crying this time? <laughs> okay, I'm signing off now. So Jesus came down from the mountain, and large crowds followed him. And then what happened? A leper came to him. Would you please stand? Everybody stand, please. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Is anybody sick here today? Does anybody have depression you're struggling with? Any affliction whatsoever? Jesus is right here, his hands and feet in the person next to you, in the person in front of you, through us. He has chosen uh, chosen us to co-labor with him and to be his hands and feet on the street, in the store, in this church, in your home. So we want to give you a chance to respond. 
But we also want to give you a chance to, if you're sick in your body, to get prayer. So is anybody sick here today? Raise your hand so I can see you. Everybody's good? No bad backs, no sore knees. Okay. Bad foot. Okay. There's no time to be shy. Okay, back there. All right, I want you just to look at, look around and see the hands that are up. And I don't want you to overwhelm them, but one or two people, go to the place, go to the people's whose hands are up. Come on, move out from among you. <laughs> see, because Scripture says that And I want you to ask them, before you start praying, I want you to ask him what, the, what they're struggling with, what the pain is, so that you know. And our prayers don't need to be long prayers, lengthy. They can be simply be healed in the name of Jesus. Jesus said to the leopard, I am, wi- I am willing, be healed. Once you prayed, I want you to stop. I want you to ask that person to test themselves, to do something where the pain was, trying to make, the- see if they have any more pain, if Sometimes, well, most times, faith takes action. So if they have a pain in their foot, have them stand up and walk. And as they walk, that pain usually goes away. So stop praying right now and ask the person that you're praying for. Stop right now from praying and ask them where they're at. Have them test their body. Did anybody have any significant change or be healed? Raise your hand. Still praying. Katie, Katie, have her check herself. Whatever you're praying for, have her check herself. Thank you, Lord. Lisa, any change in your... Okay. Okay. Can I ask you what... Right knee. Okay. Didn't somebody just have a a healing in their knee? And he's not here today. Okay. We've had knees healed. So, Lisa, grab onto that testimony. Last week, uh, a knee was healed. Keith, stand up and walk. Okay, stand up and walk. (laughs) Stand up and walk. Faith takes action. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So let me just pray for you. Yeah. Yeah. Ken, are you hearing something? Okay. Okay. So, Father, we just thank you for today. We thank you for the, for the Sermon on the Mount, God. We thank you for your instructions. Lord, we thank you most of all for your love. We thank you so much, Father, for your love.